So you've been doing it online? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And are you muted now? No, well, we're not live yet. Okay. okay. You go ahead and mute it, and then I'll come back and turn it on. So did you start it? You, 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 test one, two, test one, two. Hello, hello. Test, test. One, two, three. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you want to mute it back? Yeah. Just.
Is this it um, for the questions? Yes. Yeah? Okay. It'll pick up pretty well, so. Okay. This is a catch. Uh, I don't yes. want to land it on your. Uh, <laughs> this is for if you want to ask a question. Yeah, it's a, uh, so this is our wireless microphone called uh, Catchbox. And if you have a question, it's uh, easier if you kind of hold your hand up and we get the box to you so that everybody online can hear the question uh, as well. Nifty. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Right, and if so. you're falling asleep in class, I get to throw it at you? No, this is, sorry. Well, she's done before. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us again. Uh, Father Poes has a baptism, so just wanted to, to say hello. Uh, those who don't know me, I'm Monsignor Barr, the rector here. Uh, I love being here at the cathedral. I love the fact that Dr. Feingold mm -hmm. helps us out in this RCI pro program, which is very, very, very helpful and successful for us. So thank you. Uh, I did get one question beforehand about All Souls Day. So on November 2nd uh, is All Souls Day. And the origin of All Souls Day goes back to a, uh, a priest, uh, Father Odell. He is from the Abbey of Cluny who was kind of pushing his abbot to have a, a remembrance of those who have passed away. And at some point, you'll go over purgatory. Yeah, it'll be a little while. It'll be a little while, so I'm not gonna skip that, but we're praying so. for the poor souls in purgatory, which are souls that haven't made it to heaven yet, but will be going to heaven. And so we, we pray for them on All Souls Day. Just a great time for us to remember all of our loved ones who've gone before us in faith, and we have a special remembrance in the All Souls Chapel. We allow people to inscribe their names. We print uh, names out and photos out of people all over the chapel. They get placed there. So it's just a really beautiful remembrance uh, on All Souls Day. So I just wanted to let you know about that. And let us begin with a prayer. Let them see it first. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Loving God, Eternal Father, we come before you today and we ask you to open our hearts and minds to infuse with the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the church that he founded. Guide us, enlighten us, keep us always in your care. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Questions, anything before we start? So our topic for today is the um, is God, right? So it's a little tiny topic. Um, who is one and three? So it's basically the um, we'll look at the one God as He um, revealed Himself to Abraham and to Israel, and then we'll spend most of our time looking at the mystery of the Trinity. So this is your opportunity to ask whatever you want about the mystery of the Trinity. All right. Whoops. Yeah, so the, maybe we are, I'll skip this. The, um, so in the, basically this whole part of the catechism that we're going through right now is on the creed, right? And the creed starts with those words, I believe in God, right? And that's obviously the foundation of everything that we do. Um, and so the most important truths, um, let, me, let me take a step back. Um, not every, um, so there are a lot of truths that we believe as Catholics, right, that the church gives us to believe. They're not all on the same level, right? Obviously, the highest, most fundamental, most important is that, that God exists, and he's our maker, 
and, and, and that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? So this is the foundation of everything else. We couldn't make sense of the incarnation that God becomes man if we didn't understand that it's the Son becoming man and that the Son is distinct from the Father. And it wouldn't make sense or any of the other mysteries like baptism, um, we're getting baptized into, the, into God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or the church. Right? So everything else has its foundation here. And um, what often tends to happen, though, is that um, in preaching and in catechesis, we can sometimes think, well, this is very abstract and difficult, and, um, and, and skip it, um, because it seems too um, distant from our everyday life. But that would be, here, come closer up. If you, there's. Do you want us to That way I won't have to throw the, um, this so far. Oh, this is if, if you ask questions so it gets picked up on the uh, live stream. Okay. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I believe in one God. So the, the first and most important truth about God, after the fact that he is, is that he's one. And this is what got revealed first to Israel, right? And it's the foundation of Israel's faith, that there, was, that there is just one God. And um, as most of mankind worshipped many gods for 99.9% for of human history, probably, right? Up until, um, until God revealed himself to Abraham. And even, right, obviously, after that time, when Paul went around the Roman Empire in his missionary voyages, um, the people believed in, right, many gods. And why is it important that there's, well, first, what does it mean that there's one God? What it means is that there's one source of, of the world, right, God, not a competing. So if there were many gods, um, who, they would be, it would seem in competition with one another, and that's very often how Greek myths or Roman, the myths of the different peoples depict it. And, um, and so we, there wouldn't be an ordered world if there were a chaotic group of gods fighting one another. Um, and um, we wouldn't be able to love God with all our hearts, right? If there's you know, 100 of them, and, um, and especially if they're the way the different mythologies depict them as not all good or... Um, and so this, we just take it for granted, right? Um, that revelation to Abraham that there's one God. But it's so foundational, right? It means that we can direct our hearts back to the one source that everything has come, right? That everything has been made by God, the one God out of love. So God is one in nature and substance and essence, Right? So there aren't different tiers of gods, um, and the Trinity doesn't, can't mean that. Okay. And in part, we can know this by reason. If there was more than, let's suppose there were, I don't know, five gods or something like that, um, and they differed one from another, if they differed, then one would have something that the other god didn't have, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't differ. And if that would mean that one of these gods would each one would be lacking, right? They'd be lacking in something that the other one has. And so they simply wouldn't be God, right? Because to be God means to be the fullness 
All right, does that make sense? And that, that's the easiest way to show that there's only one God. And the second way we could say um, is from the order of the world. That the, when, even doing something like physics, all right, my dad was an atheist physicist, but he had the conviction that there's one order that we're gonna find out there, not competing orders, and that points to one order-er. And likewise in our conscience, we've got one moral law that points to one lawgiver, not ten. All right? So simply from human experience, we can know that there's just one God. And some of the greatest philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, did know that, um, even though the cultures of the world um, worship many gods. All right? So we can say this is the glory of Israel, and we see it in, um, there's a famous verse that Jews pray twice a day, morning and evening, and it's this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Right? And then it goes on to say, And therefore you shall love him with all your heart, your, all your mind, and all your soul. Right? And that therefore is interesting. Because there's one God, right, therefore we can give him our whole heart. Right? So the love of God um, really depends on the fact that there's one source of every good. Right? We don't have to wonder who to give thanks to. Right? Whereas, let's suppose polytheism was true, like the, the Greek or Roman mythologies. They would, if I got success in commerce, I'd have to give glory to, I don't know, Mercury. Or, and if I got success in love, that would be Venus. And if I got success in, in business, that would be, uh, or in, uh, let's say in power, that would be Zeus. And so what happens to religion when there are many gods is I serve gods basically for myself, right? They're like patrons for my, um, um, my needs. And they get multiplied according to human need and not according to God being the one source of everything. Right? So, so this was Israel's glory. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Sometimes that's, you might have heard the, um, ex the Hebrew word um, for listen or hear, Shema Yisrael, that's how the Jews say that. And they actually put this on the doorposts of their houses. So if you go into a Jewish house, there'll be a little... Um, little scroll rolled up that you can kind of touch and bless when you go into a house. And it's got those words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is, is one Lord, and therefore you shall love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. Yeah, and God also reveals himself to Israel um, with a, the name of those to whom he's made a, with whom he's made a covenant. This is really beautiful that God... Um, wants to be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? And we could add our own names in there, right? The God of Lawrence and Angelina and et cetera. Um, um, because that's, um, he's infinitely above his, trend, his creation, but he wants to enter into relationship with us and be known by that relationship. Uh-huh, Okay. Right. Is there a quote in the Bible that 
brings that up on how we can meditate. How we can speak about him? How you can speak about him as infinite when words are so finite. It's right. Impossible. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, I mean, so this is exactly why um, the Bible is um, a narrative. Because it's not a, um, a book. Of, so um, I teach theology at the seminary. My son teaches philosophy there. And so he teaches the abstract metaphysics courses. And so if you're talking about God in metaphysics class, it's very difficult because for that exact reason, our words fall short and we have to stretch them infinitely. But the Bible, um, speaks about God in a completely different way, right? Not simply using philosophy, but using his, um, his revelation and his action in human history, right? And so that's kind of, so we, we can understand God, even though he's infinite, we're finite, because he chooses to act in this world. He chooses to speak to us using human words, and above all, because he chooses to and enter into this world taking on flesh. Right? And we'll do that in a few weeks from now. So, so that'd be part of the answer. This, the, another part of the answer would be even philosophy, we still can speak of him. He's infinite. So here could be the kind of the worry. God's infinite, we're finite. And how much of a difference is there between the infinite and the finite? Infinite. And it doesn't matter how much um, I, you know, the greatest philosopher. Let's pick your, take your pick, I don't know, Plato or Aristotle. Um, they're just as infinitely distant as um, the, the, un, you know, the person who hasn't studied it at all. Um, and so it might seem like it's just simply impossible to say anything about God. But it can't be, and here's why. Because he made the world. And so think of it like this. Um, an artist, can you know something about Michelangelo from looking at Michelangelo's sculptures? And I think the answer is yes, right? Any artist reveals himself in his works. And so God is revealed in the things that he's made. And so this is, one place would be the Book of Wisdom, chapter 13, where it speaks about um, people looking out at the world. We're looking at the artwork, which ought, is pointing to the artisan or the artist that's made it. And if we know this world, then we have, it, would, it, it can't be that we have no knowledge at all of its maker. We know that he's, um, so it's like, or even just take a look at the, if you just see the Cathedral Basilica next door, um, nobody's going to think that happened by chance, right? Um, or there was a hurricane or something. And, and you're going to think there's an architect and that that architect thought about it a lot and made that plan. And you could probably know something about the architect from looking at the um, basilica, right? That he studied, et cetera. And, all right? and so that, that's how it works. So, but because this world falls infinitely short from God, what we know about God from this world is always going to be um, inadequate and infinitely inadequate, but not worthless. In fact, very valuable. All right, so basically we can know about God from two ways, we said. Reason, and that would be from looking at the world, inferring something about its maker, and a much better way is what he's revealed about himself by entering into relationship with us, making a covenant with Abraham, right? So even though 
Plato maybe could know by looking at the world that there's one God. Abraham knows better because God entered into relationship with Abraham and made a covenant with him. Okay? But it is true that our imagination is always going to be betraying us when we think about God because our tendency is going to be thinking too much on our level, right, and not transcending enough. But we never... We can't totally, so we can always be sure of this. If something is good and beautiful in creation, he's its source, and so he has to be that, but infinitely better. So here's an example. We look out into the world, and we see love is, say, interpersonal love. Self-sacrificial love is the most beautiful thing. So what can we, we be sure of? God is the source of that, and therefore he is it, but in perfect form, right? So that's why we say God is love. God is goodness. God is, and so we call these the attributes of God. So the attributes of God are things we can say about him, and we know they're true, but we can't know them as they are in him, right? So again, we look out in the world, goodness is a good thing, right? So God's the author of all goodness. He's got to be good with a capital G, right? We're good with small g's. Sorry, no offense to anybody, um, but um, God is... All good with no, nothing opposite. No, there's no evil. And so that, that's true. It's absolutely true. God is good, capital G. But does that mean that I perfectly know his goodness? No, right? Because it transcends the goodness we know. Right? And it's the same with love. Knowing human love, we know God is love, capital L. But again, does that mean I perfectly understand God's love? No, because it's infinitely higher. Right? And God is truth with a capital T, right? Because he's the author of, of all truth. And he knows all truth. But again, he knows it and is it in a higher way. Um, he's one. Because that too is a good thing, right? We look out in the world and it's, instead of being divided and separated, um, so th this is part of um, that revelation to Israel that God is one and has a unity greater than um, than we find in human, than a human person, right? Because we're not entirely one, right? We're one person, but our hearts are divided, et cetera. We've got lots of divisions in us. Um, so we could, so those are our attributes of God. Right? There are things that are absolutely true of him, but they don't fully enable us to know him like, you know, like we know our best friend. That's a, so what else can we say? So he's, um, he's love, he's good, he's true, he's holy, he's one. What else can we say? Okay, infinite, right. So in each one of these, because it's a capital, right, he's infinite of each of those. What else should we put up there? Eternal. Great. He's eternal, right? And he's the only one who's completely eternal. And that is from forever going back and forever going forward and unchanging. Um, so our souls um, will never end, but we all had a beginning. Right? So God, and even the angels had a beginning. So God alone is the eternal one. Great. What else? Is he, I don't know, is he unjust or 
obviously when you put it like that, he's, he is the just one, or we could say the holy one as well, all right? And so infinitely just, and that means he gives to each one their due, but in a higher way than a human court, right? And we'll talk about it later on when we talk about confession, right? So con the conf going to confession is like going uh, to the just one who gives, and, but what he does is, um, if we come in there with a guilty plea, um, what happens is we walk out of the confessional forgiven and made clean. Right? So his justice is different than earthly justice. He makes us just. Right? That, that makes sense, though, right? Um, what else? Patient. Patient. Okay. What's that? Merciful. Merciful. Fantastic. Yeah. So he's not just just but he's merciful, thanks be to God. And if, you, if we were to ask, which actually is prior, has, is more fundamental in God, his mercy or his justice, what would you say? That's a tough question. But, um, but there's a, there can be a beautiful answer. He's both just and merciful, and infinitely just and infinitely merciful. Is, is he one even more than the other? <laughs> All right, silly question. But, okay, somebody might think more just because, um, but I think it's the other way around. And that's because he didn't need to, so t justice is to give to each one their due. When he created us out of nothing, was that due to us? No, but it was merciful because he was, um, mercy is love to someone in need. And all right, maybe making the world out of nothing and making us out of um, isn't exactly mercy in the normal sense, but he's taking us out of nothingness and giving us being um, freely. And then once he's made us, then he's gonna give us what's our due. But he's always gonna give more than what's our due. Right? And so that's why I think it's, we could say that he's even more merciful than justice, but it doesn't take away anything from justice. Great. All right, so those are, um, those are some of the attributes of God. Oh, one thing we didn't put up, anybody? It's up there on the board. He, he's omnipotent also. That's not his greatest attribute though, right? Because mere power without love wouldn't be a good thing, right? And so his omnipotence, again, um, so even though all these things belong to him and he's infinitely omnipotent, meaning he is all, all powerful, right? He can do whatever he wishes. Um, that can't be the first attribute of God because that wouldn't give us any insight into how he uses that power, right? Great power in a tyrant isn't a good thing. Yeah. So yeah, let's put up in a minute. And there's something else we should put up here. I guess it goes with true, but um, wise, right? So God is infinitely wise. And therefore his plan of creation is infinitely wise. And then um, something else that we got up there, he's, he's the author. So we look out in the world and we see that the highest thing in creation is not you know, trees and rocks, but um, persons. And so just as we said, if he's made good things, he must be good with a capital G. If he's made persons, what must he be? Personal not impersonal, right? In other words, we can't think of God as like the equations that govern the, the world. Um, so he's a personal God, meaning that he has 
Um, so when we say personal, we mean um, a being with intellect and will that can know and can love. Okay. Great. Any questions about that? So those are the attributes of God. And sure, there are others. He's spiritual, transcendent. Um, and we see that Jesus speaks in the Gospels. And that's a, so we're, later we'll look at this for what um, Jesus claiming to be God. But we can also see that as telling us about God. And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Right? That's proper to God to be able to say, I, none of us can say that, right? I am the truth. I know some truths, right? And none of us can say that we are the life. We say we have life, right? And that's just as we say we have being. Can anybody say, um, I am being? That would be weird, right? But God actually said that. You probably know the story. So it's the, the burning bush. When um, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, right, and asking Moses to go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. And um, Moses asked two questions. We talked about one of them a few weeks ago, I think, when we talked about motives of credibility, why we should believe. And one of the, so Moses asked, are they going to believe me? And um, God gave him the power to work miracle, right? He says, take that staff, throw it on the ground, became a serpent. But Moses asked another question, and it was, what name should I tell the elders of Israel who, who sent you? And God answers Moses and gives him his name. What's, what's the name he gives? Anybody? I am who am. And it can be translated in different ways. I'm going to leave out the... So I, basically he says to Moses, my name is I am. Um, and then he puts it in the third person. Um, and that usually doesn't get translated. Um, and that's where we get the name Yahweh. Right? Yahweh is the, means he who is in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. So the, that sacred name of God um, means he who is. And what's the, the idea is this. We have being, right? We were nothing. All of us were once nothing. In other words, we didn't exist, right? And then we came into being, and we have received some being. But when God says, I am, or that his name is he who is, what he's saying is he's all being. Just like it's like all of these others. We have some power to love. He is love, capital L, meaning he's all of it. Um, we have some goodness. He's the good. And we have some truth. He's the truth, right? And he's likewise being. Right? And life. Meaning he's the source of everything that is. Okay? Questions on that? Okay. Yeah. And obviously he reveals, so he is love, but he reveals that he's love, not just by saying it in words. Right? It's easy to say, right, I love you, but the hard part is showing that by our actions. And so the whole of salvation history is God showing us that he is love. And we see it, first of all, with creating the world, right? The only reason he creates the world is out of love for it. Right? And the fact that it continues, right, shows his love. Right? How do we know that God loves I don't know, light? Because every morning, right, the sun comes up. It's like God is saying, do it again, right, to the sun. And... Yeah. And every generation, likewise. Yeah, that's a quote from Chesterton. 
Um, and, but above all, he shows that he's love because he enters in relationship with his creatures, right? And we see this in the garden, that he walked with our first fathers, our first parents in the garden, in the cool of the day, right? That's something that lovers do. Um, and, um, all right, that, and so in Eden, there was an original covenant. But um, he reestablished a covenant with humanity um, with Abraham, right? Calling Abraham into relation and wanting to be known not just as he who is, but as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Jesus, right? And we could say the same about ourselves. Right? But the ultimate thing that shows that he's love is that he wanted to enter into that creation himself. We call that the incarnation, God becoming man. And then what does he do once he becomes man? How does he end up? Right? On the cross. For what reason? Out of love for us and out of no other reason. Right? So we could say that everything that God does manifests that he's love, but above all, right, his passion shows his love. Right? And that's why the cross is so central as um, an image in, in Christianity and in every church. Right? It's the constant reminder how we've been loved to the end. Okay, okay so let's now go on to the Trinity. Um, I probably should have skipped more time for this. Um, so God didn't directly reveal this to Israel, right? What he revealed to Israel is that he's one. There are hints, though, in the Old Testament that he is a communion of persons. And um, what does that mean? Um, I have something? No, I don't have anything directly on that. Um, so in the beginning of, um, in the first chapter of Genesis, there's um, the most, so it's the six days of creation and then the seventh day God rests. And in each of it, God speaks and it uses a singular pronoun, right? God, let there be light and there's light. But when it gets to the creation of, of man on the sixth day, it's chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. The verb switches into the plural. It's peculiar. Let us make man in our image. Um, male and female, he made them, again, in our... So why, it, why does he speak in a plural there? And that reveals something both about God, that he is not a solitary, and it reveals something about man, right? Because we're said to be made in the image, not of a solitary God, but a God who is communion. So that's showing us something about human nature. That, and we see in Genesis chapter 2, Adam is made first and Eve made later. And what does God say? It is not good for Adam to be alone. In other words, and everybody has their own experience, right? We, if we're isolated at some point of our life, we're generally miserable. Um, because we're not made for that, right? To be isolated. But we're made for self-gift which requires another person to whom I can give my gift, right? And that is what Adam was missing before Eve was made. And the reason why, it, probably, Eve wasn't made immediately when Adam was made. So Adam would experience the lack, knowing that he was lacking something that was profoundly good for him, to be in communion with another person. So if, it, if for us, if we were the only person on earth 
And there were no other human being like Adam in the garden, and there were just you know, horses and cows um, and pigeons. And that um, Adam was not blessed in that state, right? Because he's not made for that. And we're, but if we're made in the image of God, and it's not good for us to be alone, clearly that's a hint that God also is a communion. Because if you think about it, what we were doing before, we were saying everything that's good on earth, right? Love is good on earth, so God has got to be love with a capital L. Well, something else is good on earth, and that's communion of persons. Right? Friendship, say. Or... Um, Spousal love, right? Um, and if a family is a profoundly good thing on earth, and in fact, a healthy family, the best thing, better than mountaintops and oceans um, for um, showing the goodness of God, it makes sense that God would have it in himself. Does that, everybody follow that? As we're saying, if love is a good thing, God has got to be love with a capital L. If communion is a good thing, God can't be lacking it. Right? We can't be thinking of him as some kind of solitary. That wouldn't be a blessed life. Um, and so, um, yeah, let us make man in our image and then it speaks of man, male and female, made in God's image. It's pointing to two plurals, a plural of divine persons and the plural of human society, and in a particular way, in the family, right? Husband and wife and child. All right, that's an analogy. And we said, so your question at the very beginning, how can we speak of God, who's infinitely above us? The, and a philosophical answer could be, we always speak by analogy meaning taking something in our experience, but we're stretching it, and it still has the same meaning, but in a, and we could say, a higher way, not in exactly the same way, right? That's what an analogy is. So we can make some kind of analogy of the human desire for communion and the fact that God eh, isn't a solitary father, okay? So that's just a hint. And there are lots of other similar hints in the Old Testament. And the, the bigger ones are the Old Testament speaks also of God's spirit and of God's wisdom. Um, and so there are several chapters of the Old Testament that speak of the wisdom of God as being distinct from God, walking with him, and being present when he makes the universe exulting and playing in his creation, God's wisdom, as if it were um, like another person. But it's just simply not made explicit in the Old Testament. And similarly, the spirit of God. Old Testament speaks about God's spirit being sent to the prophets who um, are inspired by his spirit and write scripture or speak the words of God. Right? And so that's, that spirit is seems to be distinct and yet not distinct, right? Because if the Spirit isn't God, how could he give the words of God? But it seems to be because he's sent that he's distinct from the one sending. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Is this the same Spirit at Pentecost? Yeah, right. And so we read about the Spirit of God in the Old Testament and then in the new, and clearly they're not two different spirits, but the same spirit, right? 
And so the, what happens is the New Testament makes explicit what was hinted at in the Old Testament. And it's above all Jesus who reveals the truth, right? And that makes sense because he's the ultimate one who reveals the Father and the inner life of God, right? How can we know? So basically, here's the problem. Can we know by human reason that God is trained? No. I could maybe make some speculation like this, but it wouldn't be really knowing him because I'm trying to get up to something that's infinitely above me. So if I want to know the inner life of God, really the only way that that's going to happen is if God reveals his inner life to us. Just like by philosophy or studying, I don't know, biology, human nature, I might know something about each of you that you're a human being, but if I want to know your inner life, how do I find that out? You've got to tell me. All right? And so God revealed that he has an inner life in which he's a communion of divine persons. And that gets revealed to us by the fact that one of those persons, the son, the eternal son, becomes man. And he, as man, reveals it to us. All right? So Jesus reveals the Trinity. And that makes sense because he's one of the Trinity. If it were Isaiah revealing the Trinity, that wouldn't make so much sense because Isaiah is not part of that inner life and doesn't know what it is. Yeah. All right? So Jesus reveals the Trinity to us. And we, he reveals it by the fact that he speaks of himself as the Son, right? the Son of the Father. So he's revealing that in the life of God, there's paternity and sonship. And he also speaks of himself as having come down from heaven. Um, so this is from the, um, the famous place in, in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say, who do you say that I am? Right? First he asked, who do people say that I am? And they get it partially, right? They say, some say you're a prophet, right? Some say you're John the Baptist. Um, but who do you say? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right? And that son implies a relationship with another person who would be father. Right? And so that's why Jesus says um, to Peter that, yes, you got that right. And it wasn't human intelligence that told you that but it, my Father who revealed that to you. All right, so basically, Jesus reveals the Trinity by speaking of himself as the Son of his Father. And it follows that he's not just a son who came into being um, when he was born from Mary's womb like the rest of us, but he says he came down from heaven. All right, so that's in John 6, the bread of life discourse. He says, I am the bread of life. I came down from heaven meaning that he always existed as the son. He didn't start being the son when he was born of Mary. In other words, from all eternity, God isn't just love, good, true, one, eternal, just, holy, merciful, omnipotent, but he's a communion. And in that communion, there's fatherhood and there's sonship, or father and son. Right? And then we also know, from what we said before, that there's spirit. Right? So that in God, there are three um, persons who answer the question, who are you? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one God, though, that answers the question, what are you? Each one answered, each person equally answers God. Right? So basically what we're saying here is that 
When we speak about the Trinity, we're saying that there's one that answers the question, what? And that's God, right? The divine essence. And that's all of these things, right? God is love, whether it's Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. Father, Son, or Holy Spirit are love. Father, Son, or Holy Spirit are good. Father, Son, or Holy Spirit true. One, eternal, just, holy, merciful, omnipotent, wise, personal. Um, but who are you doesn't just have one answer. It's got three answers. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, that's, that's mysterious because it doesn't work like that with us, right? Each of us, we can ask, what are you, human being? And who are you, Larry Feingold? And there's just one answer. There better be, right? If there's two answers to the who are you, then you would think maybe I need a psychologist, right? So in our human experience, each of us is one what and one who. But because God's infinitely above us, he doesn't have to be exactly the same as us. So there's nothing impossible about God being one what, God, but three who's. And that three doesn't make him um, into three what's, but just one um, God. Questions on that? I'm sorry, that would just cause mental freeze and, and, <laughs> and break down. Okay. Uh-huh, Angelina? I once had a professor who said, if, if you understand the Trinity in one class, you're probably wrong. That's, that's right, that's right. Okay. So basically what we just said is Jesus, by speaking of himself as the son of his father, what he's, real, what he's revealed is God is father in a way that Israel hadn't fully um, dreamt of. In other words, when we say in the, in the prayer, our father, um, somebody might take that um, a Jew wouldn't have trouble with that, right? So Jews don't, they don't pray the Our Father, but just because they're not accustomed to that, that's a Christian prayer. But there's nothing in the Our Father prayer that would be contrary to Judaism. In fact, it's a completely Jewish prayer. But, um, and they would have no trouble speaking with, about God as their father. In fact, they pray that always in the synagogue. That's one of the major titles by which Jews address God is Our Father, um, Eloheinu. But um, what they don't think of when they say God our Father is that he's father of a son who's equally God. Right? We might think, in speaking about God as father, he's father of me or of us or of Israel or of the church. But what Jesus is revealing is that God is father in a far higher way. He's father in that he... he um, so to be a human father means that I generate a human son that shares my same nature, right? I wouldn't be a human father if I didn't have a, um, a human son or daughter, um, and that human son or daughter obviously has to be a human being that has human life, right? So I used to do sculpture, and I can make a sculpture that looks like a human being, but it's made out of marble and isn't really a human being, and it would be absurd to call myself father of a statue, right? Because the statue doesn't share human nature. So to say that God is father in the full sense means that in the divine life he gives, he generates um, a son who's equally God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be father in the proper sense of the word. 
Right? And that's what Jesus reveals, that God is Father in the proper sense of the word, meaning, and that means that this happens because God is eternal, and he's got to be eternally Father, and he's got to be eternally the Son. And we also spoke of the Spirit. He's got to be eternally Spirit. Questions? All right, so that's what the catechism means here, saying Jesus revealed that God is Father in an unheard of sense. That is, Father not just of us, but Father in the divine life of a divine Son who's equally eternal as the Father. Notice, if, suppose that um, there was generation in God, and if somebody were to say the Son is not eternal, the Son got to, because we might think, well, in human terms, the Father's got to come before the Son, right? So if God has a divine Son, the Son's got to be I don't know, after the Father. What would be the problem with that? Okay, it's not how it, that works. That's not how that works. And the reason why it's not how that works is if the Son isn't eternal, the Father wouldn't be eternally Father either, and the Son wouldn't be God. Because God is eternal. And therefore, if Jesus reveals that in God there's a father and a son, we have to infer both father and son are equally eternal. And that the father isn't before the son as happens in human families. And so this is what we actually say in the creed, if you pay attention. right? We say, you got it right here, eternally begotten. Not made, not made like human sons being made. In other words, not a creature, not a creation, not made. Um, born of the Father before all ages. So that before all ages, it's the same as saying eternally begotten by the Father. All right? So in other words, in God's own life, um, he's not a solitary but from all eternity, there's never been a time when he's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? And that's beautiful. And, well, I don't have enough time to... I hope by the end of class, I am, you can see that that's beautiful. And that that's beautiful because it illuminates our life. Um, in other words, in God's own inner life, he's not a static, I don't know... Um, we tend to think, all right, if God's eternal, oh, something we could have put up here, is God mutable or immutable? Immutable, immutable right? That means without change. So God is immutable. That means he doesn't change. So be, he doesn't become father if he wasn't father before, right? That would be a change. He would be a mutable, changeable God. So we're saying by saying that God is immutably Father, he's Father from all eternity, he's Son from all eternity, he's Spirit from all eternity, right? And he doesn't change by becoming Father or having a Son. And it, it's glorious because it means his life. So in human terms, I'm, I'm speaking as a father, um, being a father is um, a huge enriching, right? That's like the, the understatement of, um, that one could possibly make. Um, so any parent will 
tell you that. And the mystery of giving life, right, is an incredible enrichment. Where did this life come from? And it, it transcends mom and dad and um, um, whatever difficulties there are in child raising. Um, the uh, marvel of it always overrides. All right, if that's true in human terms, what we're saying about God is that he has that infinitely without a change. Right? In other words, he's got an infinite life that even though he's not changeable, it's not because he's unchangeable because he's like a rock. Um, he's unchangeable because he's the fullness, and that fullness includes relationships. So that's communion goes together with relationship. Right? And we know in human life that we're richer by our relationships. Right? We're richer um, being married. We're richer having children. We're richer by being part of a family. All the different relationships. Um, and so what we're saying is in God's own life, there's relationship, and it's, it's an infinite relationship of father, son, and by spirit. So what's the relation of spirit with the father and the son? So we should think of this spirit as the spirit of love bonding the father and the son. So when, if, right, so when we draw the train, right, we always make it kind of triangle. And it's that, so if we say the father and the son, the, um, the spirit binds, is the bond of unity of father and son. Or we could say the love that bonds father and son. So the spirit is the mutual love of father to son and son to father. And so that's why the Holy Spirit um, is the bond of unity in the church and in the family. And we um, ask the Holy Spirit for blessings, right? That um, for gifts um, that bind us together. Yeah, and so John's gospel starts this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Or is God is the meaning. And so, again, there's a distinction. So God is used here with regard to the Father. The Word is the Son, right? So the, the Son has more than one name. He's called the Son, and he's called the Word, the Word of the Father. Right? And so John's Gospel is telling us that the Word is with the Father, and the Word is God. So the word God has slightly different meanings there. The word was God, meaning is the same one God, and with God means with the Father. Questions on that? Uh-huh. No, the, the translation in Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, I think the Jehovah's Witnesses say, um, was God with a small g? Is that, yeah. Um, but that, right, is a God. And that, that doesn't make sense, right? That's not what John's gospel is saying. Right? So the right translation is, is God in the same sense that the Father is God. Uh-huh. Um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all being persons. How is the Holy Spirit a person if the Holy Spirit Yeah. 
Okay, that's a, um, so in our, in our human context, neither a word nor love are persons. But in God, both his word and his love are personal. I'm going to hold that thought, and I'm going to hopefully end with that, end class with that. So, so the short answer is, what in us isn't a person, our love or our interior word, in God actually is a person. And that's because um, it's an analogy. He's infinitely higher than us, and he's not on the same level as us. Great question. Angelina? Um, so what's the difference between saying God is love and God is a lion? Ah, okay. So when we say, we use metaphors about God. Um, so these are the attributes. But we could also use tons, lots more metaphors about God. And so a metaphor is, again, an analogy, but an analogy that doesn't properly apply to him. It properly only applies to a creature. So if scripture speaks of um, Christ as the lion of Judah, or even of God as a lion um, roaring, or um, as a rock, um, we don't mean that God is properly a rock. But when we say that God is love, we do mean he's properly love. And more, he, he's more it than we are. All right, so that's the difference between a metaphor and an attribute. The metaphor doesn't properly apply to him, but it tells us something about him because he's like some aspect of that being, the stability of the rock or the power of the lion okay? or the gentleness of the lamb. Right? So we can call Jesus, right, lamb of God, the rock, um, and he even gives that, he can give that to Peter because, again, it's a metaphor. None of them are properly rocks. Okay. What's that? I'm relieved to hear it. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So we spoke a little um, about, so Jesus is said to be um, the son, the word, and he's also called the image of the father, right? So he's the son, word, image, um, the image of the invisible God. And the stamp of his nature, the spirit. So let's talk a little about the spirit. So um, Jesus speaks about the spirit in the Gospels um, in passing, but it's only at the end of his life that he properly explains the spirit to his disciples. And it's at the la after the Last Supper in John um, chapter 14 to 16. So it's at the Last Supper. He's, it's the last night of his earthly life. He's about to, to die the next day. He's just instituted the Eucharist and given them um, their first communion. And that's when he teaches them about the Spirit. And he teaches that he will send the Spirit. It's better for them that he die and leave them because he will send them the Spirit and he won't leave us alone. And the Spirit will work in our hearts interiorly. In other words, the Spirit is a divine person who can be sent inside, as it were, and whose task is, and Jesus says to the apostles, to call to mind everything I said, to teach you inwardly, right? To fully reveal the Father to us and to teach us to love. And he says there's a condition for receiving the Spirit, and that is that we do love him and keep his commandments.
and that the Spirit will also convict us of sin. In other words, the Spirit will work on our conscience. Um, and he also speaks there about he too will come, and his Father will also come. And so the Spirit is, Scripture speaks frequently of the Spirit being sent to us. But Jesus also says it's not the Spirit alone who comes. If the Spirit comes and makes a home in our, in our heart, it's because Jesus is also coming and his Father is also coming. So we speak of that as the indwelling of the Trinity. But more frequently, we speak of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They always go together, right? It's not an, um, if the Holy Spirit's here, um, so is the Father and the Son. But I can kick them out, God forbid. And that is by not doing the condition that Jesus said. The condition for receiving him is if we love him and keep his commandments. Right? And so we call that staying in a state of grace. And we'll talk more about that later on. All right? So Jesus promised the Holy Spirit that we would receive him. And that would be his best gift to us. And that he would be with us always, right, if we don't expel him as an unwelcome guest. And we, so in the creed, we say that the, um, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So this can be a point of contention for the Eastern Orthodox, right? So the scriptures give us both. That Jesus, when he speaks about the Spirit, sometimes he said the Spirit who is from the Father, but he also says that the Spirit's from him because Jesus sends the Spirit. And so it's clear from that discourse in John that um, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, but also from the Son. Right? And, so, and that makes sense if what we said before, that the Spirit is the bond of unity or love between the Father and the Son. So far, so good. Um, well, Jesus says that he will send him, right? And um, it's, so if you read the whole, it's somewhat long. If you read it, it's three chapters. John 14 through 16, it shows both things, basically, that the Spirit has a relation to the Father and a unique relation to the Son because the Spirit is spoken of as the Spirit of Jesus as well as of the Father. Right? And that Jesus, when Jesus sends us the Spirit on Pentecost, the Spirit's task is to reveal Jesus to us inwardly and to make us like Jesus. Right? That, because he's the Spirit of Jesus. Right? And he prays it. So St. Paul speaks about the Spirit praying in us with groanings that we don't, right, that transcend us. I can find that for you after class. Okay, great. What, what text did you get? Did... Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to come back to this a little bit at the end. But um, so when we speak of, uh, so the catechism is the question, how do we express our faith in the Trinity? Um, 
So we, want, we have to believe in the Trinity in such a way that we don't deny the oneness of God, right? So that's kind of the, that's the difficulty. And this is why it's easy to lose. Catholic faith is like a mountaintop, and you can fall off this side or that side. And falling off one side would be speaking of the Trinity in such a way that it appeared that it sounds as if I'm speaking about three gods. Right? So that would be a heresy. Or to speak about the Trinity in such a way that the three persons seem to be just modes or um, roles of one God. And that would be, um, uh, so for example, if somebody thought that the Trinity um, is simply one and the same divine person, God, um, we call him Father, I don't know, insofar as he's creator. We call him the Son insofar as he's the Redeemer. We call him um, the Spirit insofar as he sanctifies us in our heart. And so it would be, a, if you think of the three persons as just three roles or tasks or functions or modes of one person, that would be a heresy. Because that would be denying that there's a real relation between the Father and the Son. And that's what Jesus reveals, right? He speaks to his Father. It's not as if he and the Father are the same person. Um, the Father is called the Father insofar as he's creator and called the Son insofar as he redeems us. But Jesus prays to his Father as to a, a distinct person. Right? And he speaks of the Spirit, again, as a distinct person. But if I were to think of them as, I were to highlight the person so much that I were to think that they were not just distinct, but somehow separate or unequal, the Father being greater than the Son or something like that, then I would have three gods, and that would be um, the opposite heresy. So God and Jesus are not the same person? Um, so good. It, it dip, nor, <laughs> depends how you're speaking. Sometimes the New Testament uses the word God to mean the person of the Father, in which case they are distinct persons. Normally, we use the word God to mean the divine nature, which is one, and that is both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did I just totally confuse you with that? Depending on the context, Scripture will use the word God sometimes to mean the person of the Father. Normally, though, the word God means that which the one God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. An example was a few slides ago. In the beginning is the Word, and the Word was with God. And I said, with that God there means Father. Because um, it wouldn't make sense to say that the second person of the Trinity is with the three persons. It only makes sense that the second person is with the first person. But then when it says, and the Word was God, then it's using the word God as meaning the nature. Normally when we speak, whenever I speak in theology or in class here, and I use the word God, I mean the divine nature that's equally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm never going to use the word God to mean just the Father. But the writers of the New Testament do. And the reason for that is because terminology takes time for it to be perfected. And they, they, they didn't have ready-made a way of speaking about the three persons of the Trinity, the way we have received um, um, in the church, because there were fights about this for centuries. And the church had councils in which um, these fights about the Trinity were resolved. 
And it's through those councils and those, the resolution of those fights that we can now speak in a clearer way than the, um, than the earliest fathers or even than the New Testament. But yeah, short answer is um, that um, the Son is not distinct from God. He is God. The Son is distinct from the Father. That's the normal way we speak. Yeah, and the reason for this, the reason why the New Testament speaks like this, I'm sorry, this is um, a parenthesis, don't worry, this is a too scholarly maybe, but um, in Hebrew, there are two words to speak about God. There's the word that we might translate as God, which was their kind of generic uh, name that they would share with other countries who would speak of the gods. And then they had the personal name, and that was the name that God revealed to Moses, Yahweh. And that, though, they never spoke because that was um, reserved, that could only be said by the high priest on the Day of Atonement once a year. And so they, instead of that word, they always said another one, which is Adonai, which gets translated into English as Lord, and in Latin as Dominus. And so in the, um, in the New Testament, when the New Testament authors wanted to make this distinction of the Son and the Father, they're both equally God, but so they took those two terms and applied God to the Father, and applied Lord to the Son. So in the New Testament, when Jesus is spoken about, he's almost always called the Lord. And when the Father is spoken about, he's called God. Because what the writers of the New Testament were doing is they were taking from the two words to, to speak of God and assigning one of them to the Son and the other one to the Father. Right? So St. Paul says, there is one God and Father, and there is one Lord and Son. So you can see from that how they're using those words. And, but here's the key thing. It's not as if Lord is any less God than God. If anything, it's the more special word because it was the God of Israel who um, revealed his name to Moses. Now, I'm, I, I don't want to do too uh -huh. much attacking you. Okay. But, uh, don't worry. Uh, uh -huh. You said when we speak of God, when we speak of God here, it's in the divine nature. Right. It's in the divine nature of God. But, you know, I may be doing research or I may read something uh -huh. and it speaks of God the Father or God the Son. That's right. So, 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 so that... specifically. Exactly. So how can, in text, if I'm trying to, you know, build on words uh -huh. and understand what I'm reading uh -huh. and meditate on it, if it separates it and it comes into me like that, uh -huh. you know, speaking directly of God the Father and then going to God the Son or the Word. This, okay. It, it, it's very hard to, to, to think, like to, to bring them in. It's three, it's three different beings, but it's all just one being. Okay, so it's not three different. Great. It's hard to speak rightly about the Trinity. So we better not to use the word different, but we have to use the word distinct. distinct. Because, so here's, it's one thing to be separate. So it would, if I were to say, God the Father is separate from God the Son, that's a heresy, bad. But if I say God the Father is distinct from God the Son, that's true. That's absolutely true because it's not the same to be Father and to be Son. But here, so let me see if I can, let's just 
How do we speak about it? There's another creed that we don't usually say on Sunday that's called the Athanasian Creed. And the Athanasian Creed um, spells this out a little more. He says, God the Father is, um, and you can put this, right, the eternal one, um, God the Son, eternal, God the Holy Spirit, eternal, God the Father, omnipotent, God the Son, omnipotent, God the Holy Spirit, omnipotent, God the Father, um, love, etc. We can go through all of the attributes of God. They apply equally to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But can I say that God the Son is God the Father? Um, in other words, God, only the Father is Father, only the Son is Son, and only the Spirit is the Spirit proceeds from the two, from the Father and Son. They're the same one God, but they're not the same relation. Everything in God is one. So here's a principle. Keep that thought. Everything in God is one except relation. In other words, right? So everything God, love, all of those attributes are, are one in God. But fatherhood is only in the father. Sonship is only in the son. And being the spirit of love, the bond of unity is, is proper to the spirit. Okay. That's right, but, and that's right, because they're um, complementary relations. That, that's true. The son isn't the father and doesn't have that, that father's, fatherhood in the divine life. All right? So that's why we say they're distinct, but they're not separate as if they were separate gods um, with different natures doing their own thing. That's why he can be God if he lacks something. He's, <laughs> great. He's, he won't be God if he lacks an attribute, but he can lack a relation because that's the very nature of what it means to have a, re, a complementary relation. It's impossible to have all of those at the same time. So God isn't lacking relation, but the father is the relation of paternity. The son is the relation of sonship. That was a great question. Okay. Yeah, right? And the son says he's received everything from the father. Fatherhood. And it's there too because he says, He who has seen me has seen the father. Right? Yeah. Right. That shows that they're not separated. And fatherhood in the sense of fruitfulness, yes. The son's got that fruitfulness. He's receiving the father, and that fruitfulness is his church, the redemption that he's won. But he not father in the sense of having generated himself. He's generated from the father. Okay? Great. Very good. Okay, thank you. That's what you want to. That's awesome. This is on the is this on, on the Baldacchino in the cathedral next yeah. door? Yeah. So if you look at the Baldacchino is what's over the high altar. And if you look, if you go in there in the sanctuary and look up, this is written on the uh, I think on the Baldacchino there. Um, and that is that the son is not the father, right? But the son is God. So let's read it better. Um, father God, son is God, spirit is God. But the father is not the son, the son is not the spirit, and the spirit is not the father. In other words, they're distinct, but each person is equally God. Okay? And equally rich as the other. There's not a higher or lower of the trinity.
Here's the, so I, what's beautiful about this revelation, I, it's puzzling, it's mystifying, it may be confusing, but it's beautiful because it's showing us that God isn't a solitary, that he's got communion, infinite communion in himself. And in human terms, that the most beautiful thing in human life, right, is relationship. God is not a relationship-less um, solitary. And therefore, to rightly understand human fulfillment, it's not going to be to be the monarch with all the power who's solitary, but it's precisely the one who gives himself to others. Does that make sense? In other words, the model of a family. So very often, suppose um, you have a religion like Islam that doesn't believe in the Trinity. What's the temptation? It's going to be thinking of, say, a monarch as being simply the omnipotent one and not one who's in communion of self-gift. And likewise, if we look at the family, and in the Muslim context, because they deny the Trinity, there's going to be the tendency to want to think that um, I don't know, just the man is the, um, the one who dominates. And it's not about communion and relationship and self-gift. Right, I'd probably be roasted for saying that. But it makes a difference how we think about God for how we think about human society. Uh-huh. Right? Even That's if, right. Even if, right? Even if you kind of but, with the Old Testament, right. you can like maybe, like, it's less like you can reason it, like, oh, like, this is, like, there was hints about and all that kind of stuff, but the only way that we know that this is true is because Jesus said it was true. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. But once he said it to be true, it ought to shed great light on human relationships, because it's not the solitary omnipotent that is the model, but a communion of persons that is the source or exemplar. Right? In other words, it ought to change the way we look at every human reality, who God is, our notion of Okay. That's in there. That's in the New Testament. That's not one of the books that, like, is in the Catholic Bible, but not the, like, other, like, different parts. Uh-huh. So why are there different Christian denominations that are, like, why is there contention about whether or not the Trinity... Well, there's not usually contention about the Trinity. The contention is usually about other things, usually. But in the early church, there was contention about the Trinity. Oh, Jehovah's Witness, yes. Jehovah's Witness, there's difference about the Trinity. They do not accept the co-equality of Father and Son. In other words, it's only God, the Father, who's properly God. So not in the full and proper sense, because this is the central mystery. There, the Jehovah's Witness position is like an ancient Christian heresy called Arianism from the 4th century. And they denied that... God the Son was equal to God the Father. But they thought he must have come afterwards and been, been really like his first and greatest creation, like Michael the Archangel or something like that. Um, and so, yes, that's not... Jehovah's Witnesses don't share the same view on the Trinity. Most Protestants do with Catholics. Or... No, all. I didn't know 
And obviously Mormons don't either share the yeah, same view. Yeah. One more, yeah, great question, thank you. One more thing I wanna do before the end of this. So, something on the, so basically what I'm talking about here, reason can't get to this or prove this, we believe it because Jesus said so, but there's a fittingness or a beauty to it. And so part of the beauty is that we're not meant to be solitaries and it's beautiful and profound that in God there's infinite love. In other words, how could we say God is love if he's a solitary? Doesn't love imply self-gift? And who would, it might seem he would need us and need creation. But we want to say God doesn't need to create in order to be love. And that's because he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's an infinite life of love in him from all eternity. So that's the first thing. Second fittingness is there's a relationship between um, the words that, so this is something I said before, when it, the question about um, the Holy Spirit being love. And in us, love isn't a person. Um, so, but when you think about it, human beings have two things that we do as spiritual beings, and that is to know and to love. Um, and that's what, human, that's what persons can do that non-persons like you know, cows can't do properly, to know and to love, to know in it, and love in that interpersonal way. And um, so by speaking of this second person, the son, as, as the word, it's making a connection of the generation of the son with God's knowing, right? And there's, so we can think that the son is brought forth as the perfect word that says everything that the father is. And that's why Jesus says he comes to reveal the father. He's the word that comes forth from the father that our words aren't like that, right? My, so we've got two kinds of words, an exterior word that I'm trying to use right now and an interior word that I think inside. Neither of them are a person, and that's because our words are very imperfect. But if God has a perfect word that says everything that he is, wouldn't that be a person? In other words, it would lack nothing that the Father is. The only difference is that it would be from the Father, the Father's word. So that's how we understand the second person, as the Father's word that says everything that the Father is and differs from the Father only by being from the Father, spoken by the Father, coming out from the Father. And similarly, with us, love isn't another person. What I love, say my wife, my, my love is like a spirit in the sense of, the word spirit means breath or impetus. I'll end in a minute. If everybody has to leave, you can leave. But um, an impetus, so love moves to the beloved, right, like a breath. And in us, it's not a person. But if the Father and the Son make a love one another with a total gift of self, right, that would be lacking in nothing. So that's another reason why we say that the Spirit is from the Father and the Son. Because love, you can't love what you don't know. The movement of love in, in the divine persons presupposes the distinction of the Father and Son. So that there's always an order, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? And that goes together with the fact that the Son um, is from the Father alone, but the Spirit is the love of the Father and Son together. Right? And so that's the order, and on that we'll end. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.